Welcome to this Skyride local podcast made in conjunction with the London Festival of Architecture. Skyride is part of Sky and British Cycling's ambition to encourage one million more people to cycle regularly by 2013. Skyride local events take place across the country and cater for cyclists of all ages and abilities. They are free to join in and led by British cycling trained ride leaders who will guide you along the route and provide tips and advice on cycle safety and skills. If you enjoy this podcast, which takes you on a virtual bike ride around some of London's most inspiring architectural features and landscapes, there are five more podcasts in the series and a lot more sky rides coming up throughout the summer. Visit www.goskyride.com for more details. The Best of France in London, led by Stephen Bailey. Stephen Bailey is a design guru and architecture and design correspondent of The Observer newspaper. He is a former chief executive of the Design Museum and in 1989 was awarded France's top cultural accolade and made a Chevalier de l'Ordre des Arts et des Lettres. The ride begins at the famous Michelin building on the Brompton Road and heads east via Piccadilly, Westminster and Soho to end up at St Paul's Cathedral. A map of the route is available on the London Festival of Architecture website. Enjoy the ride. Welcome, and what a lovely day to be doing this. This is the very, very first Tour de France de Londres. Um, it's, slightly less, um, it's slightly less arduous than the original Tour de France, uh, but it's got more interesting architecture um, on it. We're going to stop at seven different buildings, um, and at each one I'll speak for no more than three or four minutes, because that's more than enough um, of me. But, the, but the, the idea here, when they... Um, I did one of these rides uh, for the Festival of Architecture last year or the year before. We did Artists' Houses. And I've just always had this freakish interest in trying to find strange connections um, in London. You can actually have a, you can create a whole new map of London just by deciding, let's look at artists' houses. And, 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 and what we're going to do here, we're trying to get a taste of France um, in London. Now, if I'd been even more lazy than I am, I suppose we could have said we could just go straight to the white burgundy counter in Nicola across the road, followed by half a dozen oysters in the Bebendum Oyster Bar here. That's a perfectly adequate taste of France. But I decided, I decided for something a little bit more challenging this afternoon. Uh, but not terribly challenging. There'll be drinks at the end of it for those of us who make it. Anyway, what we what, what we are here, we're in front of a Michelin house. And this is a, a fabulous monument, uh, both to the early days of competitive cycling and the early days um, of motoring. And you've got to remember in those days, uh, you know, driving a car, when the, the days when this was built, driving a car uh, wasn't a, a humiliating, polluting ordeal. It was a romantic adventure and a romantic challenge. I mean, the actual word, by the way, chauffeur, the driver, actually comes from the day when, when uh, it, it was so primitive in these days that you had to have a man whose job was to heat, as in chauffeur, to heat the carburettor to make sure that the, um, you know, the, um, it would all work properly. Anyway, um, it's also a fabulous connection, um, this building, the Michelin building, between the Michelin company's extraordinary genius, I mean, the greatest marketing device of all time, uh, when Michelin recognised that you know, the way to sell tyres, which is, of course, their business, is you, know, you can't sell tyres because tyres are actually very, very boring. I mean, no one anywhere has said, I've had a terrific week. I'm just going to buy a new set of tyres. I mean, they, they realised that 100 years ago. So instead, Michelin had this extraordinarily interesting idea that if you could connect the idea of using a bicycle or using a car and connect it with the idea of 
pleasurable travel, that you go to a nice restaurant, you go to a nice hotel, you see things on the way, people might want to use bicycles and cars more. And that was the beginning of the invention of the Guide Rouge, the Michelin Red Guides, which are still you know, the best guides to, you know, to, uh, you know, to gastronomy and, um, and hospitality um, in the world. And this building is a monument to them. You see them there, there are Michelin maps, which are used on the, on the glass on the other side, and these fabulous encaustic tiles. Um, which, uh, which um, record some of the original motor races, indeed bi motorbike races um, in France. But, you know, and, but that they, they, these motor races, um, they evolved at exactly the same time as the Tour de France did. I mean, it was all part of the way of promoting the Tour de France. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a promotional device to get people onto motorbikes. Anyway, what actually happened in business terms here was that in 1904, uh, Dunlop, the British tyre company, it lost its patents for um, you know, pneumatic bike tyres, um, um, expired. And that left the market open to uh, to, uh, to new entrants. And so, what happened here was Michelin decided to make its first building outside of France, um, here in um, here in Chelsea. Um, it opened on the 20th of January 1911. And the designer is there's a fabulous mystery surrounding the designer. It is one of the most remarkable buildings of all time. But uh, the the designer never built anything else. Uh, he was a man called uh, um, what was he called Francois Espinasse, uh, who's an otherwise a completely unknown technician in the Bureau des Etudes of Michelin Clermont-Ferrand um, in central France. I mean, what he's done here, as you can see, he's, he's, he's created a building which is in no, no, no style known to man. I suppose you could say it's a sort of idiosyncratic version of, uh, of Art Nouveau, but it's completely original. There's just nothing like this um, anywhere else. Another technically interesting point in it about this building is it's one of the first examples in this country of the use of onabiques, um, you know, reinforced concrete. And there's, there's, there, that, that both allows for an audacious forms of structure. But of course, I mean, reinforced concrete has very, very good um, fireproof qualities, which is necessary when you're, of course, storing a lot of very, very flammable um, rubber. Um, but it was also, most important, remember, a building as an advertisement. Um, it, it, it was when Terence Conran, uh, you know, the Habitat tycoon, bought it in 1985. Terence wanted to create a restaurant here in, in honour of the whole Michelin thing called Bibendum. Mr. Bibendum, Monsieur Bibendum, um, another great invention of, uh, of Michelin's, uh, the, possibly the greatest company logo of all times. He's the inflatable man. He was inspired by the sight of, of a pile of tyres at some sort of, you know, some sort, some sort of exposition. And Monsieur Bibendum um, was, desi uh, was designed by um, uh, a graphic designer called Marius, Marie Roussillon, who, who took himself upon himself the pen name as Monsieur O'Gallop. And, of course, Bibendum is, comes from the Horace, from the Latin tag, now is the time to drink. Alas, it isn't. That's going to be at St. Paul's a little later on. We'll, we'll do a bit of nunc est bibendum. Now is the time to drink. Then is the time to drink, about two hours' time. As I said, 1987, Terence Conran, Paul Hamden, the publisher, opened this, and it's still the... Um, you know, the Bibendum restaurant upstairs has, um, you know, it's probably got the best long-standing reputation of any restaurant in London. And it all owes its roots to this extraordinary inspiration, which was Michelin. And when this company opened, they started selling their maps and guides here, by the way, and they had a touring office. Again, it was all about that idea of making travel a pleasure. You came to the Michelin building and, you know, your chauffeur could, ha you know, your chauffeur could have a shower and you could get in, you could get your maps and you, and, and you could be off and they would give you touring advice. Touring advice is not what I'm giving you. I'll give you a little bit of architectural commentary here and there, but the touring advice is in the, um, in the hands of our great leaders, our dear leaders if we're in North Korea. Okay, uh, at Westminster Abbey next, I think, is yeah. it? Yeah.
Okay, well, hi, well, well done. Here we are in front of um, um, Westminster Abbey. Uh, we're not going to go in because unless you're going to pray, and I hope we haven't reached that level of um, that level of anxiety yet, unless you're going to pray, they charge you ten pounds. But um, anyway, this is um, odd to have this quintessentially English building included in the Tour de France de Londres. But um, here's the reason why. Um, I mean, this great thing was built, um, well, on an earlier foundation. It was built um, by Edward the Confessor um, in um, the Norman and church in the Norman style uh, was begun here in about um, 1050. And that church was actually shown in the Bio Tapestry, you know, um, which records the, the Norman invasion um, of England in 1066, of course. And this place was the, for 200 years or so after that, uh, the church here was the coronation church of all the Norman kings. Um, in this country. That was until Henry III decided to tear it down in um, 1245 and started rebuilding it in what was then the fashionable a la mode French um, Gothic style. And he used stone from Normandy and, um, and the Loire. And the very first, possibly the very first architect in this country to whom we can give a name is Henri of Reims, who was the first um, Henry of Reims, um, the first, you know, the first, um, you know, the first architect. And this, this uh, when this was being, when the original, when the oldest parts of the existing Westminster Abbey were being built, you've got to remember the architectural profession didn't exist. It was all done by, it was done by, you know, done by, um, by, by master masons. But anyway, Henri of Reims, the Frenchman, first identifiable English-based architect. But the significant thing is, as um, national confidence increased, um, local talent took over. And subsequent, uh, the subsequent masters in charge of the, rebuild, the building of the new Westminster Abbey, and of course they started at the crossing and at the east end and only moved this way westwards um, later, were uh, successively um, Henry of Gloucester and then Henry the Great, um, Henry Yevelet, um, who's often attributed, uh, to whom is often attributed the bulk of the building. And then ultimately, as English architecture began to reach its, its, its peak in the 18th century, our national confidence as architects had come to such a, such a stage that, of course, the West End um, is made in Portland stone, not stone from Normandy and the Noir. And, of course, this, these, these great two Western towers weren't designed by a Frenchman at all. They were built between 1722 and 1745 by that most idiosyncratic of English architects, Nicholas Hawksmoor. But anyway, it's a French building um, um, in essence. On to the next one now, a very, very different, um, extremely different French building. We're off to Piccadilly. Buses spoiling the view. <laughs> I've, just, I've, just, really, it's, I've chosen the worst route imaginable, <laughs> worst traffic and worst obstructions. Really. Well, that's what happens when you do something arbitrary. Can I have space? Thank you. 
so I'm um, no <coughs> no one missing yet. We're still we're still all together. Yeah. I'm sorry. This is possibly <laughs> possibly the least convenient point of view you could um, <laughs> you could have. But the building we're looking at is. But trust me, trust me. I'm a guru. The building we're looking at is on the other side of this bus. Um, and this was the uh, the French government tourist office, which was um, built in 1961 by one of my favourite architects, um, a fabulously controversialist Hungarian called Erno Goldfinger. Had Goldfinger been living in this country for 30 years, and the house he built for himself as soon, almost as soon as he arrived here at Willow Road, Hampstead, was one of the very first modernist buildings to be um, to, uh, to be. Um, uh, I think it actually belongs, is it National Trust or English Heritage? National Trust, yeah. yeah. The, well, the, I think the first modernist building to be taken on by the, um, by the National Trust. Now, Goldfinger, who I was fortunate enough to meet on several occasions towards the end of his life, was a fabulously, fabulously colourful figure. Um, hung, Hungarians are often people of extraordinary character anyway, but, but Goldfinger lived this out in the midst of a fall. He was an enormous man with a mane of hair and spotted um, bow ties. <clears throat> he studied in France under Auguste Perret, you know, the great master of concrete, but also, crucially, he studied for several years in the studio of Le Corbusier, and he regarded Le Corbusier as his, um, um, his, um, well, his hero, his patron, his mentor. Because um, at Goldfinger, he was an extraordinarily um, colourful character. Um, so much so that, um, when, that Ian Fleming, uh, that James Bond author, <coughs> when Ian, Ian Fleming needed a title for his 1959 um, book, Erno Gold, Goldfinger and Ian Fleming were slightly related by marriage. Um, Fleming chose the name Goldfinger uh, for the 1959 James Bond novel, whereupon his distant relative Erno Goldfinger um, sued him. Um, it's, it's true. Anyway, this is 1961. This was, um, this was, so this was the uh, James Bond terms of, um, of Thunderball. But the, the fictional, you know, the fictional Goldfinger and the real Goldfinger had really a, quite an astonishing amount in common. Each was Jewish. Each had come to, um, had been driven out by, you know, of Europe by the Nazis in the 1930s. Although there were some differences. The architect Goldfinger continuously smoked big cigar. Um, no, sorry, the, the Arik Goldfinger, the, 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 the James Bond vill villain, um, 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 smoked. Goldfinger, the architect, actually detested um, cigars. But, um, whereas one was very short and Goldfinger, the architect, was um, very, very big. But the, the other thing they had in common, of course, is, is that the, the fictional James Bond Goldfinger had this obsessive thing about, um, um, about gold. Whereas, of course, Erno Goldfinger had this obsessive thing about concrete. Uh, three years before this, he, he, he demonstrated his thing about concrete to great effect at the Elephant and Castle, uh, which, look, I mean, I actually like it. I love that gutsy, brutalist stuff. But, of course, to its critics, it looks like the, 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 the Institute of Mental Health in Vladivostok University. But anyway, the Piccadilly building uh, was designed, Goldfinger designed it for the French government's tourist agency, and he designed it with Charlotte Perriand, uh, one time mistress of Le Corbusier, and also Charlotte Perriand was probably, in fact, the person who designed all the furniture to which uh, Le Corbusier's name is, is credited, you know, the famous, uh, say, uh, you know, uh, chaise longue and the, and, the, and, the, and the Grand Confer chairs, probably Perriand's work. It's actually it's, it's small and exquisite. Uh, we can't really get close to it now because of the traffic. Um, but it's actually got something in common, um, something in common with the Elephant and Castle scheme, where there was the Odeon Cinema was, was, was one of the focuses. He uses exactly the same graphic motif, spelling out the F-R-A-N-C-E, here as he did in the um, Elephant and Castle with O-D-E-O-N. Goldfinger's, Goldfinger's design for the French government tourist office here in London, Piccadilly, was later transferred to the Champs-Élysées in Paris. Anyway, so, next stop, the Wallace Collection.
Here we are in uh, Manchester Square, developed by the Duke of Manchester. Um, the square itself is, is quite an interesting plan. It's a 17th century plan, and the, uh, the, the streets which come into the square arrive in the, in the middle of the square rather than its edges, and that is itself a plan with a French model in places like Nancy and, um, and elsewhere. But the reason we're here on our Tour de France de Londres is that uh, here the Wallace collection uh, is, along with the Frick uh, in New York, it's uh, the greatest repository of French art in the world outside, outside France itself. Um, as I said, the actual square was, Manchester Square, was developed by the Duke of Manchester. Uh, but in 1882, somebody called Richard Wallace uh, made this house here, um, uh, a very imposing, but frankly, slightly undistinguished uh, art building in architectural terms. This was built here in 1882, uh, but the interior, or lots of the interior, was extensively remodelled by Rick Mather in uh, 2000. Uh, the, the remarkable thing about the Wallace Collection is, is it's quite, it's utterly, utterly, utterly exquisite collection of French painting and, and, and armour and ceramics. It's, it's quite unlike anything else. But the reason, there are two real reasons for going in. Say there are two of the greatest French paintings ever are inside this building. Uh, the first is uh, Nicolas Poussin's uh, Dance to the Music of Time painted in the middle of the, 17th, um, ten, 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 middle of the 17th century. And what it is, you'll immediately recognise. You can just go and buy the postcard, even if you don't go and um, uh, look at the painting. Four figures emblematic of the human condition, uh, which is to say, in Poussin's interpretation, the human condition comprises these four things. Poverty, labour, wealth, mortality. Uh, these four, poverty, labour, wealth and mortality, are all dancing round uh, this old boy with a white beard playing a lyre who represents time. So it's, it's just a fabulous allegorical figure about these beautiful figures, poverty, wealth, labour, mortality, are dancing literally to the music of time, um, as, we, um, as we all are. There are marvellous details, which I won't go into them too much for you, but it's uh, you know, um, um, wealth and... Um, Wealth and labour are wearing rather fancy, um, you know, cage work sandals, whereas of course, uh, you know, poverty and mortality are are, are barefoot. Um, the actual iconography is also quite interesting. It's, it's a French painting, but it, but it was uh, influenced by the iconography comes from Cesare Ripa, Italian, of course, Cesare Ripa's great book of um, called Iconologia, with all the all the famous iconological um, symbols. Uh, but it's also for those of you who are mad about opera, it's also something that, that the middle of the 17th century saw the very beginnings of opera. In, uh, in France and Italy. And uh, a lot of critics reckon that uh, Nick Poussin's Dance of the Music of Time, it's not only an allegory about you know, life itself, but it's also something about you know, you know, music and art and, and total works of art, because you know, the, the chap's banging away on his lyre. Um, and of course, this painting was the book which, um, um, which inspired the, gave the title to Anthony Pohl's great cycle of novels, Dance uh, to the Music of Time. Completely different in character, but also no, nonetheless totally, totally French, is the other exceptionally famous painting we find here, which is uh, Jean-Honoré Fragonard, uh, Les Hazards Heureux de l'Escarpolette of 1767. Uh, that's to say, the happy accidents of the swing. So what we, ha what we find on the swing, we get, a, we get a young lady on the swing with her skirts flying up in the air. It's, um, and he is, let's, let, let's be frank about it, we know each other well enough now, he is looking up her skirt, and she, as is the custom of the day, is not wearing any underwear. And, um, and his left hand is going up in, uh, as, if, as if in, well, I won't, I won't amplify the, the symbolic significance of it anyway, but, it, but uh, Fragonard's The Swing, it's a, just a masterpiece of uh, 
1807, it was painted 22 years before the French Revolution, a masterpiece of, um, of Rococo ancien uh, regime frivolity. So what I mean to say, what I think you have in this collection, uh, uh, these two paintings, two of the poles of you know, French culture, Poussin's grandiose, immensely serious, um, terribly dignified, terribly ordered dance to the music of time, and then Fragonard's uh, you know, titillating, erotic, frivolous thing with um, silk petticoats flying in the air. You know, just a century apart, but totally different and still totally French. Okay, here we are. Our, our Tour de France de Londres is reaching its uh, its exciting climax, and here we are in um, here we are in Soho Square. Um, if only I'd thought, actually, we could have had recordings of you know of uh, the Beatles song Michel Ma Belle, the only Beatles song in French, as far as I can remember, because that is Paul McCartney's company over there with one with MPL on the fascia, but I didn't remember in time. But we're here because. Um, in this part of London, there are all sorts of um, French associations. There's lots of French street names around here. There's Romilly Street just over there, just in the other part of Soho back there. There's Foubert's Place, Beaumont Place. Actually, even Piccadilly, where we were earlier, is also, that's, that's uh, the, na the name um, comes from a French word, uh, you know, um, same, same word as, you know, Peccadillo in Italian, Peccadillo in French. It's a, it means a sort of particularly fancy um, um, lace collar. Anyway. A French church was first founded in London uh, by Edward VI in 1550, but that was somewhere in what we nowadays call, um, um, call the city. But um, all these the French names around here, the Fubert's Place, Romilly Street, uh, Beaumont Place and the rest of it, these are all, these are all signal the arrival in London immediately after 1685 of a mass of um, French Huguenots. Um, they left France because in 1685 it was the uh, revocation of the Edict of Nantes and Protestantism was no longer tolerated and uh, the, the, the French Huguenot Protestants um, came here and they settled in this part of London and um, they became clockmakers, armourers, jewellers and tailors, literally suppliers to the, um, to the carriage trade. And in 1700, uh, there were so many uh, there were so many Huguenots in, in London. They had, they needed um, 23 churches to service them. But this is actually the very very last. There's only one Huguenot church left in London, um, and it's this one. I should, by the way, say that the the, the derivative Huguenot means French Protestant, but it, or a certain sort of cast of cult of French Protestant. But there's no uh, there's no agreement on the etymology of the name exactly where it, it, it came from. Uh, the best anybody can do is to say that it's a corruption of the German uh, word um, um, Eidgenossen, which means a sort of con you know, conf confederation. Anyway, this building here, described by Nicholas Pevsner, his Great Buildings of England volume for London, as entirely like an office building, <laughs> which it is. As you can see, it's black and, uh, black and brown terra, um, ter terracotta. Um, it was designed by um, Sir Aston Webb, uh, whose other great buildings of exactly the same period um, were um, in 1893 was when this built was was the um, Victoria and Albert Museum, 
uh, Aston Webb created the, the you know, using a similar, you know, well, as you can see, with similar architectural language, surrounded all the ramshackle buildings which were the old Department of Science and Art at South Kensington, put that amazing screen around it, which made it the uh, Victorian Albert Museum. And therefore, um, and he also did um, Admiralty Arch at the, uh, at the top of the mile. So here's a man who's not only, I mean, the Huguenot might have, been, might have been a narrow church, but at least, I mean, Aston Webb's, um, you know, client, no, client book represented, you know, a very, very broad church indeed. So anyway, touching thing. We, uh, there's, there's, we, I didn't even get inside today. There's nothing much to be seen inside, but it's just a, a touching memorial to the very, very last, uh, the last uh, uh, Huguenot church in London. Uh, the second to last was, I think I'm right in saying, Spitalfields. Then it became a then it sign of the times. It became a synagogue, uh, and nowadays it's a Bangladeshi mosque. Anyway, the last French church in London. Okay, now we come to the Tour de France of Londres, reaches its sort of juddering climax here in front of um Now there are two reasons for being um, being here, uh, two strange uh, strange combinations of um, French connections. I mean, over there is just uh, just being completed now is a new building called One New Change. It's a vast, vast um, you know uh, commercial development. Uh, but the architect is Jean Nouvel, who is possibly the most celebrated um, architect in um, working in France today. Um, he's, one of his famous buildings include the Institut du Monde Arabe in Paris. Where he's a very inventive architect. He doesn't belong to any school. He always likes to find fascinating uh, and fascinating new solutions to the various, um, various problems. In the Institut du Monde Arabe, I'm sure you know it down you know, near the Pantheon, he, um, he had sort of electromechanically operated, electroluminescent operated metal irises which change the, the, the light inside the building changes according to the um, according to the day, but it also creates a, an effect like Islamic pattern. But here he had a different set of constraints uh, because this is the you know, this is the you know if you like this is the you know, the home of English spirit, well, the second home of English spirituality after um, <coughs> um, after Westminster Abbey, and of course because it's the symbolism of Saint Paul's from the Blitz, it survived the Blitz completely undamaged. Um, it's a specially sensitive site, and any architect working here, and so you, you, you can't really see the building now, but it's where the crane is. Um, any architect working in the area of St. Paul's has to work to this strange set of principles which were established in the 1930s. I think they're called the St. Paul's Heights, which is the, 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 uh, the, the, the surveyor of the church and the local authority have built a huge sort of conceptual three-dimensional map of the area. Uh, you know, just uh, and it, it, there's the datum line is there, and no one around here is allowed to build um, more than 35 meters high within, uh, you know, within 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 the eye sight line of um, of St Paul's, and that's so. You know, the reason for that, of course, is just so this magnificent building, um, you know, may still be uh, may still be seen. Because you've got to remember something about the um, the whole history of London after Wren's rebuilding after the Great Fire of 1666. Uh, 50 extraordinarily beautiful steeples or rows. Net rose on the city skyline, and this and this extraordinary, extraordinary dome. You've also got to remember that um, in the um, in the 18th century and the first quarter of the 19th century, um, the shape of the city of London didn't really change at all. Dickens describes it as, you know, as a warren of sort of a warren of you know commercialised domesticity. Um, 
but it was, the, it was to this warren of commercialised domesticity that um, a, um, a famous French visitor um, arrived. And this is the second um, French connection here. Uh, Soufflot um, came to visit St Paul's to study it. And what he did is the conclusion of our France in London uh, outing. Soufflot, of course, copied St Paul's and put it in Paris as Saint-Geneviève, the Pantheon. And so I just think that's a fitting conclusion to our journey, which started out at Westminster Abbey, which was the design, well, partially created by a French stonemason out of French stone. Rather wonderful to have had this symmetrical journey and to have come back here. And um, this, this building, which inspired one of the greatest neoclassical buildings in Paris. Uh, now, I'd like to thank all the marshals for their extraordinary bravery and good spirits, all of you who've been such good sports. Uh, one of the marshals just got off to see if we can find a somewhere which will sell us a few bottles of pop or, uh, or a handsome bar where I'll buy you all a drink. Uh, we're just waiting for the recce to be over. But seriously, thank you all. I hope that was... And the marshals have been brilliant. Yay. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this London Festival of Architecture Skyride. For more information about lead group rides in your area, please visit goskyride.com.